Welcome to episode 30 of Aspore Kirtley, where it's the third episode in a row where I haven't had to wear a hat. Welcome, welcome to episode 30. Yes, 30 episodes of Ask Paul Kirtley already, or we will have by the time we finish this one. So thank you to those of you that watch this as a video. Thank you to those of you who listen to this as a podcast. I really appreciate you watching and listening. And of course, I really appreciate everyone who's sent in questions so far and who will continue to send in questions going forwards. Um, I still have a little bit of a backlog, but I am catching up. We got through a lot of the paddling questions last episode with Ray Goodwin. If you haven't seen that one already, episode 29, where Ray answers a lot of questions from uh, things to, to do with beginning paddling through to expedition paddling questions and overnight tripping and lots of other things, check that out, episode 29, and of course, check out the second edition of his great book, Canoeing. There's lots of fantastic information in there. There's nearly 30 new pages in the book. There are updated photographs. There's a hundred new photographs in there as well. And in terms of the work that I do with Ray, there's a couple of sequences that come directly from trips that we've done with clients in the past few years. One sequence from the French River, one sequence from the blood vein, where skills are being employed in situ, in context. It's not just a series of photographs that we've staged or a series of photographs that have been taken just while practicing them nearer to home. They are those techniques being used for real in wild environments on expeditions. So it's a great opportunity to see those in there as well and have a bit of an insight into what goes on on some of those trips if you're interested. Um, whether you're ever going to join us or whether you're just interested in looking from afar, then it, it's a great way to delve into that world. There is an absolute lifetime's worth of experience distilled down into that book and it is very, very good. And I'm not saying that just because I'm on the front cover, um, the fantastic new cover that Ray took while on one of our French River trips as well great photograph that encapsulates what the canoe's about and we were very lucky to get that get that photograph or Ray was very lucky to get it um, and he'll tell you the story in episode 29 if you haven't seen it already of how we went about grabbing that photograph early one morning but anyway Without further ado, I'll get on with answering the questions. This is from Matt and he's in Australia and he starts off, Good day, Paul. Um, just wondering what your thoughts are on knife storage. As I understand it, sheaths are not intended for long-term storage. They're more for convenience and safety while out in the field. They have the potential of holding moisture and, then, and thus rusting a knife over time. For the average Joe who doesn't quite get out or use their knives as frequently as you, how do you recommend storing the knife out of the sheath? Also, is olive oil okay to use to help protect the knife. I occasionally may use my knife for cooking duties, so I'd like to use something that is food safe. Cheers for your valued contributions back into the community. Matt from Western Australia. Well, you're very welcome, Matt, and I'm glad that my information and advice is as useful to you down there as it is to people closer to me here in the Northern Hemisphere. And I guess we're all somewhat envious of you for the adventure opportunities you have down in the outback and the bush there in Australia. And uh, it's good to know that this stuff is useful to you down there as well. So in terms of, um, in terms of knife storage, yeah, you can store your knife out of the sheath and that is something that will 
at least help prevent a microclimate around the knife affecting uh, condensation, for, exa for example, on the knife. Um, and also, if you have a sheath that will hold moisture, then it just separates the two, as you suggest in your, in your question. Um, I think, of course, you've got to take into consideration some safety aspects as well. I don't know if you've got other people with you in your home, whether they're, uh, you know, whether it's a spouse or kids in particular, you need to make sure that either other adults are aware that there's an unsheathed knife stored somewhere, or if you have kids in the house to make sure that it's out of the way that nobody's going to injure themselves unnecessarily. If I'm going to store it out of the sheath, it might as well not be in anything. I think if you're going to store it in something, storing it in the sheath is as good as anything else. I think the issue you've got is um, twofold. One is um, if you're, when you take the knife from an outside environment to the indoors, then it can cause condensation on the blade and that's something just to be aware of and also if you've got temperature going up and down inside the house or humidity going up and down then that can also cause condensation on the knife even if it's not in the sheath so you know if you're storing it in a garage for example and it was cold at night and warm during the day or just gradually getting warmer or colder and there, there could be potential for moisture to, to build up on even a, a small amount of moisture on the blade could cause um, some uh, some corrosion so I think your suggestion of putting some oil on there is a good one, but first of all, make sure the knife is clean. So when you bring it into the house from outside, which may be more humid than inside the house, make sure when you take it out the sheath, clean it off and make sure it's free from any fingerprints and anything else that might um, have any sort of acidic base to it that's gonna etch the blade over time. So give it a good clean when you bring it home. And then you want to be, once it's definitely dry, make sure that you put a thin, and it only needs to be thin, thin layer of oil on it. Um, and that may be something you then have to just repeat, you know, just check on it every few weeks just to make sure it's all right. Maybe reapply a bit of oil, maybe clean it off and put a bit more oil on if you want to, um, just to make sure that it's got a good coating on there. And also some oils go a little bit tacky as well, a bit sticky, um, and at least you can then clean off the old oil and put on some new oil. So that's the first thing you can do. Um, in terms of what oil, um, yes, you can use food oils. You know, olive oil would be all right. Walnut oil would be okay. You know, that would be would be all right. You don't want a thick layer on there, and particularly if you're putting it back in the sheath, you don't want to be putting lots of icky stuff in there that's going to make the uh, the sheath, you know, oily on the inside eventually, and maybe not uh, a great environment for um, not harboring. Uh, muck and things sticking to it and just causing you don't want the inside of your sheath to get all clagged up with oil is what I'm trying to say so if you are putting it back in the sheath just make sure it's a very very thin coating of oil you could also look at some specialist oils that are used for protecting um, swords uh, the classic example being samurai swords and there's a couple of things that are used there one is basically um, Camellia oil, and that's a good one to use. That's a light oil and you need a very light uh, coating. And that's something that I've used on knives uh, because while I am using knives regularly, I do have a number of knives. I'm not a particular knife collector, but I do have a number of knives for different purposes. And also people have given me knives and I've got um, 
prototypes of knives that I've worked on and various things. I like to keep them in reasonable condition. So I find camellia oil works pretty well. Um, I don't know if it's food safe or not though. Maybe somebody that's more familiar with uh, with that might, might leave a comment or let me know. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to check if it's food safe or not, to be honest with you. Um, as I say, I choose the questions quickly and I don't really prepare for these shows. I just answer the questions, but camellia oil definitely works in protecting them. The other one is an oil which is largely mineral oil, but they put some clove oil in it to make it smell nice. Um, that may not be food safe because of the mineral oil in there. Um, so that's another that's another option though because it works so in terms of protecting your knives it certainly works um cooking oils definitely work in terms of protecting them but you may not end up with such a fine thin oil on them uh, a film of oil you may not then want to be putting that back in the sheath because it will gunk up your sheath so if you're storing it out of the sheath sure but then again make sure it doesn't soak into other things you know it, they they have a tendency those sort of cooking oils have a tendency that the amount you have to put on them have a tendency when you put them in contact with paper or cloth or or furniture of sort of soaking into uh, things as well so that's something else to be mindful of so maybe put some greaseproof paper down in a drawer put the knife on there lightly oiled with the oil that you decide to use in the end and that'll be fine and then just keep checking it and give them a clean every now and again and that should be fine I'm sure some knife collectors can tell me a lot more detail but you know if we're talking about a knife that's used in the field a fair amount when it you know it's not a collector's item it's just something you use in the field but it want you want it to stay in good nick while it's in the house that's all you need to do I, I wouldn't do any more than that all righty knife grinds this is a question from Barry Dutton and it's off Twitter Barry asks, can you compare or contrast a few different knife grinds or edges? Explain and show them on camera for visual learners. Thank you. Well, Barry, um, I can't show anything on this show because it's, um, it's not the right format. Um, as I say, this goes out as a uh, podcast as well. Uh, some people just listen to it, and that was always the intention for this to be consumable uh, visually on a video on YouTube or on my blog, as well as orally, um, via your ear um, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on wherever else, what other platforms and directly on my blog of course don't forget that if you want to listen that way and you can download the file straight off my off my website as well for those of you that like to download a file onto your local device. So I'm not going to show things but um, I think at the end of the day Barry most of the jobs for that come under the, under woodcraft, if you like. So the woodcraft side of bushcraft, your best bet is just to go for a standard, what most people call a Scandi grind these days, but it's just a fine flat bevel that's about 22 degrees um, angle. And don't get too worked up about that. As long as it's sharp, if you look at all of the Scandinavian knives, which are good for wood carving, they've got a flat bevel, um, the, the, the blade isn't too thick, um, three or four mil and even four mil is starting to get a bit thick for carving but as a general purpose bushcraft knife four mil is good three mil um, is better for carving the smaller knives for carving are good as well but they tend to have a uh, you know like the Mora wood carving knives they have a thinner blade still but that's what you want really for all of those woodcraft type 
jobs and, and nothing much wider than your the palm of your hand in terms of blade length that's absolutely fine it's not the most ideal grind for butchery for example um, you know some butchers knives tend to have a fine secondary bevel on them uh, whether that's a fine very very fine flat bevel or a slightly convex bevel if you're going to be doing lots of butchery a deer butchery for example that type of thing then maybe you want to go for a more specialist um, butchery knife but again generally a general purpose bushcraft knife is going to you know you can butcher a deer um, or a, you know even a larger animal with a general purpose bushcraft knife as long as it's sharp and a fine flat bevel is easy to sharpen in the field and it's also easy to sharpen at home so frankly I don't get too caught up uh, talking about bevels or recommending bevels to people At the end of the day what's important is that you practice what you want to get good at with the knife so for example I used to work with Lars Falt in the north of Sweden on some arctic courses and Lars started the Swedish military survival school um, many many years ago and he's the sort of doyen of Scandinavian survival training and he's done lots and lots of survival courses around the world he's trained lots of pilots and other um, military personnel in survival in cold environments and um, he uses uh, what's basically a Falkneven F1 but with a different handle and it has a, uh, a concave sorry a convex uh, bevel as it comes down to the edge and he can do a lot of things with that that I struggle to do with his knife and I've tried his knife um, I struggle to do feather sticks with it to be honest with you um, whereas my knife that has a flat bevel or a, a more broad my PK1s aren't quite flat they're very slightly convex but a, a broader bevel I can do feather sticks with them more easily um, than I can with an F1 but if when I've practiced with an F1 for longer um, so for example when I've had access to an F1 and used it for more time I get into a feel for doing those things with that knife so a lot of it's about what you're familiar with at the end of the day you want a knife that's sharp and that you can keep sharp in the field and that will do the jobs that you expect to be able to do some knives are better for carving with than others for example my pk1 isn't great for carving really fine uh, work you know if i have to carve a netting needle for example the end of my pk1 the way the tip comes up isn't as good as some slightly more spear pointed knife so i tend to just use a, a mora wood carving knife for that or a smaller companion knife which i sometimes carry and um, which i had made custom as well so you've got to choose the knives that are going to work for you whereas the pk1 it's a bomb proof robust wilderness knife that i can do all my day-to-day -day jobs with i can carve a spoon with it um, I can butcher a deer with it, I can split wood robustly, I can uh, make feather sticks with it, I can use it with my fire flash, um, I, it, it does what I need it to do, it's not going to break, it's completely reliable. So um, it's not so much about finessing the bevel and having a range of different knives, just think about what you need it to do. Do I need one knife that is going to be a jack of all trades that I, and, I, and these are the things that I'm going to do or am I going to be in a fixed camp where I'm going to be doing lots of carving in which case maybe I should get a, a carving axe and a, and a small carving knife and then I can be more efficient and effective with those things that I want to do or am I going out hunting um, I'm not really going to be doing much with my knife other than uh, grallocking a deer and, and butchering a deer with that knife um, 
maybe I want a slightly different uh, blade shape and bevel for that. But other than that, ge the, the general purpose knives that are out there for general purpose bushcraft are going to serve you well for general purpose bushcraft. And the general purpose hunting knives are going to serve you well for general purpose hunting. Um, a lot of people spend too much time going back to some of the questions we've had in previous episodes. A lot of people look in a vacuum at these things. What's more important is you go out and get experience. And I use as a, as a, as a benchmark, as a, as a watchword, if you like, Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania who I visited with. All of them, without exception, had knives that most bushcrafters and woodsmen would be embarrassed to have. So most, you know, whether, you, whether in Canada or the UK or the US or, or Scandinavia, all of the people, if you search on bushcraft or any related term on social media and find people putting up pictures of knives and discussing knives, all of those knives are far superior to any of the knives that I've seen hunter-gatherers use to live off the land, whether that's used for making parts for friction fire lighting sets, for making bows, for making arrows, or for butchering animals, using the same knife for all of those things. With consummate skill and knowledge, the knife becomes much less important. So again, going back to the, one of the drums that I beat, skill and knowledge trump the specifics of the tool. As long as you've got some sort of cutting tool, you can do it with practice and with familiarity, and that's what you need to go and get. Pooping in the woods. Another Twitter question from Luke Ludwell, and he says, how best to poop in the woods? Technique, environment, materials. That's what I like about Twitter, concise questions. You're limited to that number of characters and you can't go over it. So it, it, it creates pithy, concise questions. Um, my pithy, concise answer, Luke, is there's already a video on my website that talks about that. Um, so go and find that. If you've not already signed up to the 20 videos that you can get on my blog, some of them are a bit old now, so my, my presentation style is a little bit wooden, my camera skills are a little bit ropey, some of them I made back in 2012, 2013. The content's still good, of course. Um, you, they're all available, 20 plus two uh, bonus videos, 22 videos that you can get for free. Go to my blog, find 20 free videos, and you can have those. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And um, for those of you that are watching on uh, YouTube, I'll put a link in the top here. And if you're not familiar with the cards that come up on the side of YouTube, most of my videos now I put cards in. You have to click the little I that's in the top corner, the little I symbol, information symbol, and the, and the cards that I've attached, which have more information about some of the things I've talked about in the videos or may have been included in the videos, are there with links through to uh, another video. It might be on YouTube, or it might be an article on my blog, um, or it might even be an article on Frontier Bushcraft, because um, some of, the, some of the things that I've written about in terms of bushcraft skills are on my company's website, on Frontier Bushcraft's website. So um, those are in the cards on the side. Wherever you see that little grey circle with an eye in the middle, that's because there's some more information there. And it comes up the top with suggested, but after a while it disappears. But you can find that by clicking on the eye. So 
um, I will click through to where you can get those 20 free videos. And if you've already got those 20 free videos, any of you, there is um, a video there about how to go to the toilet in the woods. So that's that. Cooking cattail from Dave Wellsby. His question is, hey Paul, I was wondering, in your opinion, what's the best way to cook cattail root for taste? Best regards, Dave. On the fire, Dave, take the root, put it on the embers, wait for it to be cooked black all the way around, break it open, the inside should be steaming. You should be able to see the starch crystals on the fibers. Um, they should taste somewhere in between sweet chestnut, roasted sweet chestnut and potato. And that, in my opinion, is the best way for flavor. Um, it's also the most field expedient way of cooking them as well. So that's, that's what I do. Reproofing. This is from Gavin Henry. And his question is, I think this is following something I mentioned on a course that Gavin was on a while ago. And Gavin asks, um, hi Paul, hope all is good. What was the stuff you recommended to reproof a Gore-Tex bivy bag? Nickwax, uh, TX Direct? Yes, Nickwax TX Direct is what I use for reproofing uh, Gore-Tex. You can also use some of the Granger's products, which are good as well, um, but I tend to use a Nickwax um, in the washing machine. Uh, you just have to be careful with the temperature, of course. Remember that you're washing a synthetic garment that has, has probably quite low temperature requirements um, in terms of what you can wash it at. Um, and it's the same, you know, just with a big bag full of Gore-Tex, a big bag of Gore-Tex is no different to a Gore-Tex jacket in that respect. And also you've got seams often on jackets and on, on, on bivy bags, which are uh, glued on in some respect. And if you heat them too much, the seams will, will untape as well. So just be wary of that. But wash first with um, uh, a detergent-free uh, cleaner so don't use a, a washing machine detergent bio or non-bio either way is not good you want to be using something that's effectively a soap so old-fashioned soap flakes like dreft or similar works well or you can buy a, a nick wax product uh, which is called Uh, oh, the name's gone off. The name's gone from my head. Sorry, but there's a Nick Wax product, um, which is often sold right next to the reproofing product, um, which is a Tech Wash. Tech Wash is what it's called. Nick Wax Tech Wash. Um, wash with that first on one cycle, um, so on a synthetic cycle, and then do another wash with the reproof agent after that. And uh, what's also worth checking if you're using a washing machine that hasn't been cleaned recently, and most people's washing machines haven't been cleaned, um, the drawer that you put detergent in, if you're using a powder detergent, that often gets quite clagged up. What can be worth doing is washing that out. So I tend to take mine out and wash it in the shower because the detergent will stop the reproofing agent from, uh, from uh, adhering properly. So wash that drawer out first. Do a quick rinse cycle of your washing machine just to make sure it's properly flushed through. Then do the wash with the tech wash and then do a cycle 
with the reproof agent and that's the way that I reproof things and I tend to batch reproof because the, the cleaning of the washing machine and everything um, I know after the first one it's good to go for the next one the next one so I tend to do like uh, you know if I've got a number of bivy bags I'll do them one after the other um, I'll do my jackets and my waterproof trousers you know my mountain lightweight mountain stuff and my heavier weight forest stuff I'll tend to just batch it all maybe in the spring I'll do it and maybe in the autumn I'll do it so that everything is um, is all done at once and um, I don't have to keep flushing the washing machine to make sure it's free of detergent I've done it once batch everything do that and then go back to normal and a shout out to Nick Wax as well relatively local company here in in Sussex and they produce a good product I have no connection with them other than that other than they're local to where we run some of our courses down here in the south of England. All right, work gloves for bushcraft. And this is from Middle-Aged Dad on Twitter again. Sorry for a kit question. <laughs> Can you recommend some work gloves for bushcraft? Thanks for your videos and podcasts. Um, soft hands is, is an issue that I see quite a lot when I'm teaching courses. People these days don't do things with their hands that causes them to have rough hands and stop the sniggering at the back. Um, you know, we're living in an age where most people who have any sort of work um, doesn't involve a lot of manual labor these days, certainly in the, in the first world, in developed world. Um, you know, some people do, of course, but there are many people who work in IT, many people who work in an office, many people who even drive for a living who aren't doing lots with their hands that's going to make them, you know, calloused. Whereas, you know, somebody who's working as a tree surgeon or working as a bricklayer or working as a gamekeeper may have those, that toughness to their hands. But for those people who get a lot of, uh, pleasure from going and camping and using their bushcraft skills on a weekend or going out for a week's camp but haven't had the opportunity to toughen their hands up beforehand yeah that can be an issue you get sore hands um, and particularly if you're building shelters and stripping nettles and doing those sorts of things my hands um, they start off the beginning of the course season they get a little bit sore the first couple of weeks because even though I'm out and about a lot the the amount of concentrated bushcraft activities and techniques that I'm showing to people in a short space of time are more than maybe I would do of different things you know more than I would do if I was just out making a trip for example um, but then we're doing lots and lots and lots of stuff on a course and then we start all over again you know we might do a week-long course and then do a weekend and then do another week-long course and you know we're doing the same things over and over again and lots of it and the first couple of weeks of that my hands have to toughen up but then they they do become calloused they become very tough um, and it's not a problem and so if you don't have the time to do that then maybe a pair of leather gloves is is useful um, I don't personally use leather gloves in, in a northern sort of temperate environment except when there are lots of biting insects around and we we alluded to this last week with the with the Ray Goodwin episode actually we talked about bug suits and he mentioned as an aside that he takes some leather gloves as well and I do the same a sort of a thin pair of leather gloves that mosquitoes and blackfly are not going to bite through is a really sensible thing to take with you along with a bug suit and they can be useful for, the, for those purposes um, some people like 
like to take um, leather gloves to use around the fire, but there's a, there's a, sometimes there's a bit of a false sense of security. I've seen people grab some really super hot things and burn through gloves almost instantaneously. So don't fall into that um, trap of thinking that they will stop anything from burning you because they won't. Sure, if you can not just, you know, if you tap, tap on the back of your hand on the kettle um, handle and it's a bit too hot to, to grab, but not absolutely red hot sure a pair of leather gloves is going to help you lift those off and we have those in our camps we have our um, uh, brew kit and we have um, some leather gloves or uh, welders gauntlets we have often in camp but leather gardening gloves would work just as well those sorts of things are, are fine you don't need anything particularly specialist for bushcraft you just need some work gloves so some leather work gloves go into a hardware store go into a DIY store um, a do-it-yourself store or a home base or a B&Q here in the UK but the, you know the equivalent elsewhere in the world um, where you're going to get everything from maybe some home uh, furnishings through to you know uh, wood for DIY through to spare doors locks and chains tools garden furniture that type of store they will have somewhere some work gloves or gardening gloves um, I tend to just go for a pair of leather ones and they're not massively expensive. You can buy, um, you know, leather gloves that are made for, you know, by outdoor glove manufacturers, but they tend to be more expensive. So if you just go to a, a hardware store and get those, that will be fine. Um, the other time I use leather gloves outdoors is in the cold and I use the Hestra um, gloves that are uh, that Lars Falt had some say in the design of um, and they're now called the Falt Guide Glove. I think sometimes they're marketed just as the Hestra Guide Glove but they come in two different colorways. One is a tan and white colorway, the other one is a dark brown like a chocolate brown and black colorway and they have a removable um, sort of terry wool liner which is really quite warm for the size of it um, they're quite expensive for a pair of leather gloves but in the northern forest in winter i think they're indispensable they're not great in damp environments though i've used them in wet snow in scotland for example and they just soak up moisture but for a cold dry environment where you still need to use your hands to do things where you might otherwise be putting mittens on some of the time um, i find those hestra guide gloves very very good but a little tip that actually came from Lars himself and I'm sure Hestra won't like this very much but what he does when he's teaching kids in colder places um, or uh, people that can't afford the Hestra gloves get some work gloves of the type that I've already described some leather work gloves um, that might cost you 10 pounds or 20 dollars for example get them a couple of sizes too big and then buy the liners and use them in the same way as the as the as the um, as the Hestra gloves um, one of the things about the Hestra gloves is though that they are, um, the leather's very tough for the thickness of the leather um, and so you've still got a lot of dexterity. The work gloves plus the liner tend to be a little less dexterous so that's, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for sort of maximum dexterity, toughness and warmth in one package but if you don't have that money you can create the same thing with some leather work gloves and uh, some sort of liner um, and that works quite well as well for colder, slightly colder environments. So that's my recommendations. Get some leather work gloves of the right size for the right time of year and you should be good.
This is another Twitter question. I'm hitting the Twitters today, trying to catch up from Preben Richter. And his question is, can you please explain what size of billy can you are using and why? I want to cook a proper meal. <laughs> Cheers. Well, Preben, um, personally, I tend to use a, if I'm in the woods, so we're talking billy cans, you asked specifically about billy cans, I tend to use either a 14 centimeter uh, wide zebra billy, which is stainless steel and, and pretty good, um, but it's a bit heavy. Or I use um, one of the Moors pots, um, which is available uh, if you just search Moors pot on Google after Moors Kachansky or Kahansky, however you'd like to pronounce his name. Um, you can get a, a hard anodized aluminium pot which has a lid and um, a folding bale and it's also got a little pouring spout and it's got a little handle on the back as well and I've got one of those and I've been using it more and more and I really quite like it and that's a similar diameter uh, but slightly squatter than the than the zebra and so I, I think about a 14 centimeter wide pot that gives you about two liters capacity is, is really good. You can boil water for yourself and another person in that. You can cook enough pasta and other things in that for you and another person, but it's not so unwieldy um, to carry with you. So just if you're on your own, um, and as I say, if weight's an issue, go for the hard anodized aluminium as opposed to the stainless steel, um, and that will save you some weight uh, and give you about the same capacity. And then the other thing I always take with a, um, with a billy can is because you're putting it over a fire, it's going to get sooty, dirty on the outside, and then you put it into your main rucksack or even into a side pocket, it makes other things dirty. So get some sort of Cordura stuff sack that you can just put the uh, billy can into so that you keep that soot on the inside of the stuff bag and that helps keep everything together as well. You know, the lids don't always fit on you know they're not always sealing onto the top and so they'll let rattle loose and so having a little draw cord bag for everything to go in just keeps everything together one other thing it goes without saying but you always want to have some sort of fault you know for cooking over a fire you always want to have some sort of handle on the top that folds away out of the way when you don't need it um, on a on a billy can Okay, this is a question from The Stag on Twitter. And his question is, if you could only choose one item to go to the woods with, what would it be and why? Well, it depends on where I'm going. Choosing one tool to go to a particular wood is not difficult. Choosing one tool to go to any piece of forest or jungle anywhere in the world would be uh, a compromise somewhere in the world, although you wouldn't be com you know, with, completely without utility having any of the cutting tools anywhere in the world. But choosing one tool for a particular environment is not hard. Um, in the north, in the northern forest, an axe is by far and away the most important tool, um, whether it's for making shelter, for producing firewood, which is a more day-to-day -day job, um, you know everything you need whether it's making a replacement canoe paddle through to chopping down a dead standing pine tree sectioning it splitting it for a stove or making a long log fire or any of those jobs an axe is the tool for that 
um, environment and I've made videos about choosing an axe for that environment in the past and I will link if I've got some space left in my links I will link to that on YouTube and I'll put something in the show notes as well about linking to that video. Um, in more northern temperate it would be a toss-up between a knife and a smaller axe but I would probably go for a knife because I can do pretty much everything that I need to do in terms of fire and shelter just with a knife I don't need it so much as I would do in the boreal uh, I don't need an axe as much as I would in the boreal because I just don't need the volume of firewood it's the volume of firewood that really makes an axe the preeminent tool in the northern forest whereas in the northern temperate I can get by with a knife and I can do things with a knife that maybe I can't do with an axe, some of the finer, smaller jobs. Um, you know, you can, um, you can do animal butchery with an axe, but it's easier with a knife. Um, and uh, although a moose, I've, nev I've never, I've never um, skinned or gutted or, or butchered a moose, but I'm told that uh, an axe is quite a good tool for some of that job, if not all of that job. Um, from people who know more about that than I do. But um, generally the size of game that I'm preparing, whether it's a deer or a rabbit or a hare or a pheasant or any of those sorts of things, a knife is probably the best tool. Um, gutting fish, um, carving things I need around camp and just general utility, whether it's cutting bits of cordage or, or whatever, um, a knife is my best tool. So, you know, most, most of the uh, northern hemisphere um, I'm happy with a knife into the boreal I'd want an axe as my primary tool tropics I'd want a parang or a machete as one tool um, and some of Australia as well you know Matt asked a question from Australia you know a lot of that is um, you'd be quite quite well served with a, a parang or a machete or just a knife in some of those sorts of more arid areas you know a lot of Africa a knife will serve you well um, you know, we talked about the Hadza before, you know, a knife in that environment in, in East Africa would be fine. And even in Southern Africa, a knife um, on its own would be fine. And then in the more tropical parts, again, as I say, around the equator um, and a bit north of that and a bit south of that. And in the South Pacific, in Asia, in parts of Australia that are more, uh, you know, on, on the top end in, in uh, uh, and, and right across to Cape York, a machete might be useful there. but taking one tool is not the difficult one but having one tool to suit you in every single environment is is the hard one and then of course if i if i could you know would i take a saw as as the primary tool anywhere no i wouldn't but that's always going to be second on my list really to my primary tool um, whether i'm in the northern hemisphere in the northern forest sorry and i'll choose a larger saw like a buck saw a folding frame saw to work with the axe for the larger stuff particularly for the firewood and um, that will be my my secondary tool of choice where i'm carrying a knife my secondary tool of choice would be a folding saw that might go on my belt as well um, where i'll be carrying a machete or parang less first to have a saw but a folding saw would be useful again in that those sorts of environments um so that's that's my that's my choice so um a knife in a lot of places northern forest boreal axe tropical areas um i would have a machete or parang that's that's my thinking on that Last question, 
don't know how long we've been going tonight. Uh, it feels like quite a while, but we've got through quite a lot of questions. Um, so that's good. Question from Instagram, and this is from Andrew Casey. Nice picture there, Andrew. His question is, he says he's envious of the people attending frontier bushcraft courses and learning new and valuable skills at this time of year uh, to be less reliant on kit. Yes, that's what bushcraft is about fundamentally, to be less reliant on kit. And we had an interesting discussion um, underneath one of the YouTube videos uh, with some people a, a while back with regards to bow drill. Some people were saying, I would always plan to use a lighter or a fire steel in a survival situation and therefore um, I would not rely on, on bow drill. Well, I don't think you can ever plan a survival situation. Um, you can plan the training that you've had and you can prepare by carrying certain pieces of equipment on you. And I'm not saying that that is a bad idea. As I said in that answer, absolutely carry a fire steel on you. And if you've learned bow drill and hand drill and other methods of fire by friction really well, you understand more than anyone the value in carrying those things for convenience, for reliability, uh, for if you're injured, for for speed under certain circumstances, um, of course you do. But it doesn't mean to say there's no value in learning those other things. And if you do perchance end up in a survival situation, which might be a survival situation because you've lost your fire steel, you've lost your lighter, um, and there are circumstances that that could happen. However much you tell me, oh, well, I'll make sure it's tied onto my person, this, that, and the other. What if you go down some rapids and your, your fire steel is in your pocket um, you've fallen out of your canoe, you go down some rapids, your fire steel is tied onto a piece of paracord, it's on your belt, on your belt loop, and it gets ripped off. What happens if your trousers get ripped off? And if you think that's um, ridiculous, I've known, I've heard of that happen. People in um, avalanches have had clothing almost completely removed. People who've gone down rapids have, had, have lost clothing. Um, there are circumstances where you end up with a mu much less equipment than you think you might have. Um, and yes, some of them we could we could you know we could go down the naked and afraid route and say what happens if you end up just with a fig leaf and nothing else. But the point is, I think it, all well and good. I've got a fire steel in my pocket. I often have a cigarette lighter and or matches in my pocket. But it doesn't stop me understanding the value of learning um, friction, fire, and all these other things. And I think um, at the heart of bushcraft, it is a reduction in reliance on kit. It doesn't mean, therefore, that you have to always use that skill under any circumstance that you can think of. We're not saying you must use fire by friction in a survival situation or a difficult situation in the outdoors where your friend is wet and borderline hypothermic. Sure, if you've got a better, quicker means of lighting fire on you, use it, but you will be better at lighting fires if you've practiced bow drill. I can guarantee that. Anybody who wants to argue against that is dumb. Okay, somebody who has practiced friction fire with multiple different types of wood, using multiple different types of tinder, and taking that into multiple different types of small sticks or feather sticks, and establishing an actual fire 
is much better than your average Joe who goes to the store and buys a Swedish fire steel or fire rod and goes to the woods thinking that they're going to look after themselves. Yeah, I can, I would bet on the, on the, not set with the fire steel, I'm saying. Yeah, the person who's got the, the experience with all those bow drill woods and, and, and tinder materials and kindling materials and all the different methods of preparation is going to light fire with a fire steel better than the average Joe who goes and just carries one. Yep. So it, even if that's your plan and your plan comes off to use the fire steel, then you're still going to be at an advantage. So that to me is also the power of learning these bushcraft skills because you've just got more tools in your toolbox. You've got more depth to your ability and you're not reliant on kit. You're absolutely supremely happy to have it with you if you're in a difficult situation in the outdoors, but you're not as reliant upon it. You're not if you don't have it. So how do we get people less reliant on kit? Um, Andrew, I, I don't know. Um, I think just keep banging the drum of learning the bushcraft skills. It doesn't mean you have to, um, you always have to take less. It doesn't mean you have to go camping just in your underpants and use bow drill every time you light a fire. What it means is you've got options. Even if you're planning to do a camping trip, you've got options. Um, and one of my issues, and we've talked about it before and I've talked about it in, in my Lightning the Load videos, one of my issues with bushcraft people is that they tend to choose overly heavy kit as well, which is kind of ironic really, is because at the heart of learning how to use all these natural materials is something which releases you from a reliance upon equipment. But then people go and choose heavy sleeping bags, heavy rucksacks, a lot of it is army surplus, that's fine, it's tough, it's robust and it's inexpensive. And if those are your criteria, absolutely fine. But you can get away with lighter weight stuff, you can get away with much less in your kit, whether you're choosing army surplus, whether you're choosing from uh, an outdoor store or a combination of things, or whether you're making your own or combination of any of those things. At the end of the day, kit is a personal choice. Um, but I think there is too much obsession with the kit um, as I've said before, there is bushcraft and there is kit. Bushcraft is about using the resources that are around us in an intelligent, informed and skillful way. Um, that's also, if you like, respectful of the environment. We can layer that on as well, but from a purely utilitarian perspective, the more you know about the different trees and plants and animals and how you can use them and what they can tell you, um, the better equipped you are before you even have any kit, before you have any clothing, before you have a knife, before you have cordage, before you have a fire steel, before you have a bivy, before you have a tarp. But this constant discussion about what type of tarp, what type of bivy, what type of boots, what type of this, that's got nothing to do with bushcraft. Those are age old questions about what suits you better for camping or walking or traveling in certain circumstances. The, the, the two go together, of course, and the more bushcraft skill you have, the more flexibility you've got with how you use the kit. Um, so I think at the end of the day, Andrew, to answer your question, which I didn't fully finish reading, which is um, what's the best way to show kit obsessed people that the knowledge you carry in your mind is more useful and powerful than what you carry on your back? 
Um, I know we all rely on kit, but I think some believe that's what bushcraft is about, which it isn't. Do you have any mechanisms or exercises to change people's views? Um, I, I, I don't think it's my job to tell people that they shouldn't be obsessed with kit or that they shouldn't collect knives or that they shouldn't um, discuss equipment on forums and Facebook pages and even maybe go out and use it occasionally. Um, that's not my job um, because frankly that's got nothing to do with me. Um, that's their business and I think people need to come to their own conclusions. I can sit here and say I like this bivy bag, I like this pair of boots, I like this knife because I've tried lots of different options, I've used the different options outdoors, often in somewhat ropey circumstances where I've really had to test the equipment or test myself or both and I've come to the conclusion that that works for me in these circumstances. I've always been able to rely upon this, I've always been able to rely upon this, this is the most flexible option that I want to take with me because it's going to suit me in all these different circumstances. That comes from my experience and I don't think you can get there there are ways of shortcutting it and of course you can get advice from other people but I don't think you can get there in terms of having 100% confidence in your core equipment without having used it a lot um, and it's the same with your skills. I think you, you have to go out and practice these things and I think you're right that bushcraft as a word has become somewhat hijacked. Anything that involves camping and a fire tends to get called bushcraft these days. Anything that involves knives tends to be called bushcraft or survival these days. And actually, whether we're talking about bushcraft um, skills or survival skills, it's the skills and the knowledge which are important. Um, and particularly with survival, it's you know understanding um, signaling and short-term shelter and when somebody going to come looking for you? How are they going to come looking for you? Um, what should I have done to leave word before I go? You know, what comms do I have? How do I use them? What as SOS? That's all really, really important. And unfortunately, people are not learning that stuff. And also people are not learning all the, the wider bushcraft skills either as heavily as they are concentrating on configuring what's in their pack, what's in a pouch, what's in their belt, you know, um, you know, there are people who are making survival packs and pouches, I'm sure, going out with them in their packs and they probably haven't told somebody where they're going or maybe they, I'm not saying that's everyone, I'm just saying I'm sure it happens. Um, there are some fundamentals which you have to put in place. Um, but can we ever get away from the obsession with kit in the 21st century when everybody, we live in a technological society where the next technological innovation is hailed as the next great thing. And don't get me wrong, I've got an Apple laptop, I've got a smartphone, I'm using a very nice video camera to record this. Don't get me wrong, I take advantage of these things in terms of sharing knowledge. Um, but I do think we can easily get wrapped up in the next best shiny thing. And, and I think the only thing I can say to people is go out and have an adventure. Go out and try your kit. Go out um, and, and just enjoy being out um, and then start to use what's around you and learn about it. Um, I think there's a lot of how do I phrase this? Um, 
there's a lot of people looking at what's, as I say, bushcraft, I think, to a certain extent, has become hijacked. And is it, again, people will say I'm being arrogant and I don't own it and this, that, and the other. I don't, but I've seen it change over time. If you look at Robert Graves's book, Bushcraft, if you look at Morse Kohansky's Northern Bushcraft, or now called Bushcraft, if you look at those books, which were written quite a long time ago, what most people are doing on Instagram and Facebook and elsewhere and they're posting photographs are saying I've been doing some bushcraft I don't see a lot of what's in those books I see fires I see cooking campfire cookery which is great I see some fires I see hammocks and tarps yes but not a lot which involves using natural materials around from around you and I don't necessarily mean you have to go camping and build a shelter I just mean where are people making cordage and when people are carving a lot of the carving unless they're really into the green woodworking a lot of the carving's not that good um, and I don't see people some people are doing friction fire lighting some people I don't see a lot of natural navigation discussions I don't see a lot about tracking um, I don't see a lot about uh, I see some don't get me wrong um, but the vast majority is about what's in my pack, what's in my pouch, what's, what knife have I got. That's the majority. I would say 50, 60, 70% of stuff that gets posted on the internet around bushcraft is about equipment. Um, and it's not bushcraft, it's just kit. It's just kit. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's different to, so this is where we come back to your question, Andrew. I don't know if that's different to that's always been the case that people who first get into a subject um, get sort of drawn magpie-like to the shiny things um, but it's just more obvious now because it's online you know in the last 10 years we've had Facebook and YouTube and all of these things become available to us um, and Twitter and Instagram and people are just sharing those things more openly um, so maybe that's where it seems like lots of people are just focusing on those things. I would hope in time that people get their kit sorted and they, they, they find things that work for them and they get out and then they look beyond that in terms of what bushcraft really means um, and that we start to see more of that online as well. I know with some of the people that are on my courses they're posting a lot of tree and plant identification, they're posting some tracking things, they're posting posts that are more to do with nature which shows that they're now taking a deeper look into the natural environment and understanding the natural environment so that they can get more from it you know they've got their basic kit sorted out they've got their understanding of how to look after themselves you know with thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know they know how to look after themselves they can light a fire they can make a shelter they know what to carry in the day pack in case they need an emergency shelter they carry a head torch and spare batteries and a compass and a map and they know how to read them and they can forget where they need to go. They've got their base, they've told somebody where they're going, they've got their basic survival skills sorted, and now they're looking at a deeper level of, of, of an understanding of what nature can provide to them. And I don't mean that in a kind of uh, sort of airy fairy way, I just mean in terms of there is so much more to learn than most people who have ever posted anything on a social media platform with the hashtag bushcraft know um, to, to learn. And even for me to learn, this morning I was reading a research paper, 10-page research paper on um, indigenous plant use in Central Asia. There is just tons of stuff out there um, 
that's available to people to learn from and yet the obsession with the knives and which ferro rod is best and all these things persist. Once you've got a knife that works and a ferro rod that works, move on, move on. That's all I can say, Andrew. Um, and I'll probably get slagged off by some people for being a bushcraft snob or anti-knife collectors. I'm not against people being aficionados and I've made this distinction before. Every subject needs its aficionados, you know, whether it's um, MGB cars or steam trains or, or stamps, somebody needs to understand the differences and the subtleties between different print runs and different uh, engine sheds and different um, runs on the production line and who, who, what modifications were made to which models. Every subject needs that and people to understand them and people to collect them and preserve them. I've got nothing against that and that includes axes and knives. But again, that's not bushcraft. Bushcraft is going out and using a knowledge of nature in the woods and taking from nature in a, in a way that allows you to do the things that you might otherwise need to rely upon equipment to do and live more sustainably in the woods. Um, and you know, that could be just for a night, or that could be for, a, for multiple days, or that could be for longer. Um, and then you can pick and choose which parts of that you integrate with your modern outdoor life, whether you're close to home or further afield, depending on the aims of your trip as well. You know, you might just want to go out and do some carving for the weekend. You might want to go and do a two week canoe trip in a wilderness area where you want to light fires every night. Um, you need to have an understanding of making your water safe. Natural navigation is going to come in handy. And if you come unstuck, your basic survival skills that you learnt first are going to come in handy as well. You've told somebody where you're going, you understand how to use a satellite phone. All of these things integrate. I don't see them as separate, but what I do see, as you say, is not a lot of people focusing on the, the skills around natural materials. So I think I kind of answered that to an extent. I think all we can do, Andrew, is share more knowledge. At the end of the day, all I can do is share more knowledge about the bushcraft side of things. I'll answer the basic questions about kit in the hope that people move on from that, get out more and then look deeper into the woods and into the fields and into the hills to see what else they can get from those experiences. Move beyond just worrying, have they got the right equipment with them? Have they got the, the right shoes? Um, some of that comes with experience, as I say, but at the end of the day, you need to just be happy and kind of move forwards from there and uh, be comfortable in the environment to start off with, I think is part of it. So that's a, a somewhat rambly answer and I make no apologies to those of you that say I could be more concise. If you want a more concise podcast, go and find a more concise podcast is what I say to you. I think on my feet on these, people really appreciate the thought process that I go through on some of these shows where I am thinking out loud. I don't prepare these, it's not staged. I don't have a production team. I don't have a researcher who writes a script for me about what I say. It's me talking to you, to those who are interested, and I really, really appreciate those of you who are. So thank you very much for the questions. Thank you for listening and for watching, and I will see you as we move into the 30s of Aspel Kirtley. Take care, cheers. <laughs>